John chapter 1. We'll look this evening at verses 6 through 13. But I'll back up and begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 13. The sermon is entitled, The True Light. Would you give your full attention now to the reading of God's holy word? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the Word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you as we consider that light which you sent into the world to ask that you would grant us the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit, that we might, as we study this text together, as we hear the Word of God read and preached, that we might hear the voice of our faithful shepherd, that we might see him as he truly is, that we might receive the light and know that he indeed is the light of our souls. Father, we pray that you would grant us now such eyes that we might perceive the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, this evening we, I don't know if you remember or not, but the last time I preached I think it was two sermons uh, on a Sunday. Um, I preached the gospel according to John, and we looked at uh, John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 5 over the course of two sermons. So what I'd like to do on Sunday evenings here, at least uh, to, to start off with, is continue with that series. And thus far, we've been introduced to the book, if you can think back that, quite that far, uh, and we've covered the first five verses in which the evangelist discloses the identity of the Son by virtue of His divine being in verses 1 and 2, and then by virtue of His divine works in verses 3 through 5. When our text for this evening, we find Him further expanding upon the metaphor that He's just introduced in verse 5, namely that God's sending of His Son into the world to usher in a new creation is analogous to the way he sent light into darkness at the time of the old creation. As Genesis chapter 1 and verses 3 through 4 says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Now last time, it's a while back I know, but last time, we noted how the original goodness of the light, God saw that the light was good, and the way He separated that light from the darkness serves to signify the spiritual antithesis between good and evil after the fall of humanity into the estate of sin and misery. This is what John means in verse 5 when he describes the coming of the sun into the world as light shining in the darkness, which the darkness has not overcome. That antithesis reached its climax at Jesus' first coming. As we'll see in our text for this evening, the line of demarcation between the kingdom of darkness in the world and the kingdom of God's marvelous light, to use Peter's phrasing in the church, runs through the hearts of sinners who either receive Christ unto life and salvation, or reject Him unto death and condemnation. 
And so as we look at the text this evening, I'd like to divide it into two sections, two sections. First, verses 6 through 8, where we see a witness to the light. And then the second, verses 9 through 13, we see a divided response to the light. So what we see happening in John's gospel is exactly what God did in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, on that first day of the creation, when he separated the light from the darkness. We see a kind of dividing that's happening between the children of light and the children of darkness. Let's start there in that first section, verses 6 through 8, where we see a witness to the light. In verse 6, we read this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The evangelist now turns from the heavenly gaze of his first five verses in order to scan the earth below in search of a witness. And as he searches for a witness on the earth, there he finds John the Baptist. Whereas the Word was with God and was God in the beginning, having neither beginning nor end, the evangelist now speaks of a man who once was. A man who once was. Interestingly, the the Greek word that's translated was in verse 6 is the same word translated made in verse 3. This man is one of the things that was made through him, through that word who was with God and who was God in the beginning. In other words, this man, this man named John, was a mere creature. Further, he's one of those who by nature was born under the darkness of the covenant curse of death, which we saw back in verse 4, but in whom the light of the covenant blessing of life had shined through Jesus Christ. Verse 5, John the Baptist was a sinner saved by grace. And as he did for the Word in verses 1 through 5, the evangelist not only identifies John according to his nature, saying there was a man, but also according to his work. This man, he said, was sent from God. In other words, though he was a mere man, his work, his mission was not. It was not merely human. His mission was from God, John says. But what was that mission exactly? Well, verse 7 tells us he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. The evangelist identifies seven who bear witness to Jesus in his gospel. And we're going to find as we make our way through John's gospel that that particular number for John is quite important. The number seven. There are seven miraculous signs and wonders that he records. There are seven I am statements. I am the bread of life, etc. There are seven absolute I am statements. We see the number seven quite often in John's gospel. We see that as well when we get to the book of Revelation. But he identifies seven in his gospel who bear witness to Jesus. There is, of course, God the Father. There is God the Son. There is God the Spirit. And then there are the miraculous signs or works that Jesus performs. There's the Holy Scriptures. There's the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, there is John the Baptist. And so we now read that John was sent from God to do the work of bearing witness, to be a witness bearer. This is a legal work. It's a work that's associated with the law court. We see the same kind of law court imagery coming up time after time in John's gospel. We see it later very prominently in Jesus' uh, discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You remember how he ends that discussion in verses 19 through 21, saying to Nicodemus, and this is the judgment. There it is. There's that law court imagery, that legal imagery. This is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the coming of the true light into the world marks the dividing line between righteousness and sin, between good and evil. Later, Jesus will teach his disciples about the way the outpoured Spirit will continue that work after his ascension to the Father in heaven, saying in chapter 16 and verse 8, and when he comes, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He will continue to do this work of dividing. John was sent from God as the final old covenant prophet to bear witness about this light which had pierced the darkness of this world. This division between light and darkness that happened at Jesus' first coming. And we might think about this in the context of a courtroom where a case is being argued. The case has to do with the identity of Jesus Christ. And so one side is arguing for one identity, the true identity of Christ. And the other side is presenting all sorts of false arguments about the identity of Christ. John bears witness to Jesus' true identity, while others bear false witness against him, identifying him falsely. This is one of the major themes in John's gospel. And so later in chapter 8, in verses 42 through 47, Jesus teaches a crowd who refuses to believe, saying this, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. Notice that identity issue. He's identifying himself for these people. He is the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of, of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And then again in chapter 10 and verses 22 through 30, the text says, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. See, there it is. Who is Jesus? What is this man's true identity? That's the question at hand. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There it is. The identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. This is what's behind the religious leader's question to Jesus in chapter 10 when they ask, how long will you keep us in suspense? This is what behind, what's behind Jesus' seven metaphorical and seven absolute I am statements in this particular gospel. This is what, what's behind Pontius Pilate's question to Jesus in chapter 18 when he asks, are you the king of the Jews? One of John's major themes is identifying Jesus as the only begotten son from the Father. Who is Jesus? That's the question. 
Who is Jesus? That may be the most important question any human being will ever answer. It's the most important question you will ever answer, beloved. Who is Jesus? More important than any question you'll ever have on any quiz that you ever take in any school. Who is Jesus? The way you answer that question has eternal consequences. John the Baptist was sent from God to testify as a witness about the light to the end that all might believe through him. In other words, John was sent from God to bear witness to the true identity of Jesus. Namely, that Jesus was the Christ, the only begotten Son of the living God, so that others might hear him and be persuaded to entrust themselves to him. That was John's God-given mission, to bear witness to the true light, to the Son who was sent from the Father. Look at verse 8. The text continues, He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. As we noted in a prior sermon, one of the rhetorical devices the Apostle John employs throughout his writing is that of coupling affirmations with complementary denials. We see this in the great confessions and creeds of the church. There's an affirmation. Here's what we affirm. Here's what we deny. It's a way of being very precise about what you're saying. And so John taught in verse 3, just a little bit before this passage, in verse 3 of chapter 1, all things were made through him. There's the affirmation. And without him was not anything made that was made. There's the denial. And that's what we see him doing here. Having just taught that John came as a witness to testify to the true identity of the light, he now adds the complimentary denial, he was not the light. He was not the light. Later in verses 19 and following, we'll find the religious leaders questioning the identity of John the Baptist. And so John the evangelist wants to make it crystal clear that John the Baptist was not the light, but merely a witness to the light. Beloved, this is really the nature of all Christian ministry. The nature of all Christian ministry, if you get down to the bottom of it, is to bear witness to the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. It is to point away from oneself to the true light who enlightens everyone. This is where so many so-called Christian ministries go wrong. They forget that they are not the light and begin to think and work as if they are the light. And when that happens, the Spirit of God has ceased to work through that ministry since the Spirit was sent to glorify the Son. By God's grace, that did not happen with John the Baptist, but John the Baptist remained faithful to his God-given mission to bear witness to the light until he was martyred by the wicked King Herod. Moving on to verses 9 through 13, we see in the second section a divided response to the light, a divided response to the light. So what happens when we bear witness to the true light? What happens when the gaze of sinful creatures are directed to the light of the world through the faithful witness of the church? We see a divided response to the light. Look at verse 9. The text says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Of course, as we've already noted, the phrase true light signifies God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh in distinction from any other light. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. He is the light that was coming into the world through His incarnation. This light, the true light, the evangelist says, gives light to everyone. But what does He mean by that? What does He mean by that 
phrase, gives light to everyone. Commentator D.A. Carson offers four options. First, it could mean that this light shone on every man before his coming into the world at the incarnation and continues to do so today through God's general revelation. Paul speaks of this kind of revelation. I know you're very familiar with this. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, when he says, For his, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The great Protestant reformer John Calvin takes that interpretation of this text. Second, it could mean that the light shone through the incarnation and spiritually enlightens not everyone without exception, that is every single individual, but everyone without distinction, that is both Jews and Gentiles who believe. 20th century commentator F.F. Bruce takes that interpretation. Third, it could mean that the incarnate Son is the only light available to everyone such that if anyone is to be spiritually enlightened, it must be through Him. In other words, there's not another option. Early church father St. Augustine takes that interpretation. And fourth, Carson himself believes the most probable interpretation is that the light, the shining of the light, signifies the incarnation, and the giving of that light signifies its objective revelatory character. Now, we might think of this in terms of the, I'm going to use a a big phrase here, a, a, a little technical phrase, the eschatological intrusion of the life and light of God onto the sin-darkened stage of world history. That's just another way of saying what God has purposed from the beginning to be the consummate end of all things has already in some respects been inaugurated in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. And so as as this eschatological intrusion of life and light onto the sin-darkened stage of world, world, world history happens, the human race is divided between those who hate the light and therefore flee from it lest their evil deeds be exposed and those who come to the light and thus receive the inward spiritual enlightenment that comes through faith in Him. And so the kind of enlightenment in view is akin to what we would refer to as the general call of the gospel, which must ordinarily precede the effectual call. I tend to agree, I think, with D.A. Carson on that interpretation. I think I see that same paradigm recurring in John's gospel on many occasions. We see this paradigm in what we've already quoted from John chapter 3 and verses 19 through 21. We also see it in what Jesus teaches in chapter 12 and verses 35 through 36, when just a few days before his crucifixion, he says this, and he appeals to the same light metaphor. Listen to what he says and then connect it with what John says here in our text. Jesus says in chapter 12, 35 through 36, the light, by which he means himself, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And so in that teaching from Jesus, we see clearly, I think, two ways in which men might be enlightened. Men might be enlightened, might have the light either outwardly while you have the light. So there's this outward illumination kind of idea. And also inwardly, that you may become sons of light, he says. And what's the inflection point between the two? Such that the outward illumination becomes inward spiritual illumination? It's saving faith. While you have the light, outward illumination, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So, 
general call. We could put it in our own terms. General call. Believe that general call. Effectual call. This kind of idea. Look at verse 10. The text continues, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Again, there's at least two ways to interpret what John means when he says he was in the world. Clearly, the world to which the evangelist refers is the world that now is, which is under the dominion of Satan. And so what's in view is not simply creation per se, but fallen creation, which is in bondage to futility and, inclu- and includes the unrighteous rebellion of created moral agents, that is, angels and human beings. Now, some take the clause, he was in the world, as a reference to the general revelation which God has given from the beginning through his works of creation and providence. Again, Calvin, John Calvin, takes that interpretation. Others take it as a, t- as a reference to the time of the Son's first coming in the form of a servant. Carson and Bruce take that interpretation, and I tend to agree again with Carson and Bruce on this issue. I believe, I believe John is appealing, he's appealing to the incredible irony of the world's rejection of the very God who created it. After that, God was incarnated within it. Later in chapter 15 and verse 18, Jesus teaches His disciples in the upper room saying, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. This is what the evangelist now means when he says the world did not know him. He's not talking about mere speculative knowledge. In that sense, all who met Jesus knew him. What he's talking about is a saving knowledge. The God who created the world that now is was in it for a time through the incarnation of the Son And yet the world, rather than receiving him and worshiping him as its creator, hated him and condemned him instead. The world did not know him. Look at verse 11. The text says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, whereas the previous verse speaks of the response of the world out there, so to speak, namely the pagan world of the Gentiles, this verse speaks to the response of God's own people, that is, the old covenant church. This is, I think, one of the evangelist's primary apologetic emphases throughout his gospel. John is at pains throughout his gospel to explain why it is that, by and large, God's own covenant people rejected their Messiah at His first coming. The Apostle Paul takes up the same question. I know you remember in Romans chapters 9 through 11, and his answer is the same as John's. Both actually quote the same Old Testament text to answer the question. They quote Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1. Paul quotes that text in Romans 10 and verse 16, and John quotes it in John chapter 12 and verse 38. John offers in that text this divinely inspired commentary on Israel's rejection of Christ, saying, though he had done so many signs before, him, before them. Again, there's one of those witnesses, one of the seven witnesses to Jesus' true identity. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, and here's the shocking statement, therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That rejection, that rejection is what John now encapsulates in chapter 1 in verse 11 when he says he came to his own 
and his own people did not receive him. Interestingly, the Greek phrase that's translated his own, he came to his own, could also be translated his own property, his own home even. And when we consider the latter of those two translations in light of John's focus upon Jesus' identity as the new covenant temple or house of God among men, think again of chapter 2 and verse 19 as Jesus is confronted in the temple and he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And he's talking about himself, his own body. So given that, the clause, he came to his own, he came to his own house takes on an even richer meaning. He came to his own home. He came to his own house, meaning the promised land, meaning more specifically Jerusalem, meaning Mount Zion, meaning the temple itself. The God who inhabited the temple walked into the temple in human flesh. And those who had inhabited his home, those who were supposed to be called to serve as priests at his home, those who are called to serve as scribes and teachers at his home put him to death. He came to his own. He came to his own. He came, he walked into his own home. And those that he had set apart as caretakers of his home put him to death. One of the most shocking moments in John's gospel is directly related to what he now says in verses 10 through 11. It's very easy to miss because it's a very quick little thing that happens in the upper room discourse. In chapters 15 and 16 of John's gospel, as he's teaching his disciples to prepare them for what they're about to endure after he is crucified, he says the world will hate them as it hated him. And then he describes the hatred of the world saying this, they will put you out of the synagogues. Now think about that for a moment. He's saying to his disciples, the world will hate you. They will put you out of the synagogues. And thus the Lord Jesus equates those who were once not of the world, the old covenant people, the church with the world. Those members of the Old Covenant Church who persist in their rejection of Christ demonstrate that they really belong to the world and are children of the devil rather than the children of God. As we've already seen the Lord Jesus teaching them in chapter, chapter 8. Look at verse 12. And here we see the good news. But... But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. While the world without and most of the covenant people within rejected Jesus as Lord, some, a few, from both realms did not. Some actually received him. John further clarifies what he means by receiving Christ when he says, who believed in his name. Who believed in his name. Now, that's an interesting way to put it as well, isn't it? We oftentimes think of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, entrusting ourselves to him, flinging ourselves upon his mercy. And that's a right way to think. But here, John appeals to something else, believing in his name. In one of William Shakespeare's famous lines from Romeo and Juliet, he asks, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Of course, his point is that names are, in many cases, arbitrary. Of course, there's a sense in which He's right. Among creatures, names are often just placeholders. But the same cannot be said of God. God reveals Himself, His own divine nature, through His names. 
And so when John speaks of believing in Jesus' name, what he means, again, going back to what we saw earlier, what he means, what we saw in this witness-bearing idea, what he means is recognizing Jesus' true identity. Jesus is the Christ. There's a name. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. He is the Son. There's a name. The Son who eternally proceeds from the Father. He is the Son of the living God. And to entrust oneself to Him is to know that He is your Lord. There's another name. He is your Lord. He is your Master. He is your ruler. He is your God. And He is your Savior. He is the one who gave Himself for you that you might be saved out of the estate of sin and misery into the estate of grace and eventually even into the estate of glory. Now, connected with his apologetic emphasis on Jesus' rejection by his own people, which we see throughout his gospel, is John's focus on answering the more basic question of why, given the same exposure to this light, some believe while others do not. Why do some believe and others do not? We see the same focus from the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11. And again, Paul's answer is the same as John's, namely the doctrines of unconditional election and effectual calling. We see this, for example, in chapter 2 and verse 25 when John tells us that a group of people had seen Jesus performing signs while he was in Jerusalem for the Passover. And they seemed to have believed in him. But John says, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. He knew what was in man. We see it in chapter 3 and verse 3 when Jesus teaches Israel's teacher, Nicodemus, saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We see it in chapter 6 and verse 37 when Jesus teaches the crowd, saying, all that the Father gives me, not just some, but all, all that the Father gives me, who is that? That's the elect will come to me. And whoever comes to me, there's the believing, I will never cast out. In that same passage, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So in verse 37 of chapter 6, you have unconditional election, all that the Father gives to me. And then in verse 44, you have the effectual calling. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In these and in many other places throughout John's gospel, he takes us up into God's eternal purpose of election and his supernatural work in our effectual calling. This is the answer at bottom. This is the answer for why some believe and others do not. I don't know if you've had the experience, I pray. In some ways, I pray that you have because I can't imagine living life as a Christian and never having this experience. But there's someone you know that you love deeply. You know they've been exposed to the light. You know they've heard the gospel. You know they know the facts but they don't believe. They simply don't believe. And you wish with everything in you that you could just make it happen, but you can't. You can't. It's not possible. Only God, by the powerful working of the Spirit, 
can transform the heart, can draw the sinner to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that the sinner comes kicking and screaming against his will, but God changes the will so that the sinner comes willingly, fleeing to Christ, seeing the kingdom of God in Christ, seeing the glory of God in Christ. That's the supernatural work of God in the heart to do that. And that's the answer to why some believe and others do not. And that's what we see in verses 12 through 13. For those who believed in his name, John says, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the doctrine of adoption. And notice the word right. John doesn't just say he gave the status of sonship. He says he gave the right to that sonship. Now, that's a very powerful word with which we as Americans should be very familiar. Our nation was founded upon a document called the Bill of Rights, which delineates ten inalienable rights given by God that belong to each citizen. But what is a right? Well, a right is something to which one is entitled. And so when John says the right, the right, he means the entitlement. But how can he describe saving grace as entitlement for sinners in any sense? Well, don't miss this, beloved. Part of the grace of the application of salvation to sinners through the new birth, which is where John is about to go in the the text before us, Part of the grace in the application of salvation in the new birth is that through our faith union with the Lord Jesus Christ, what is His by nature becomes ours by grace. Just as Christ was righteous by nature, so we are counted righteous through faith in Him. His righteousness becomes ours by grace. And just as Christ was sanctified by the Spirit for His public ministry by nature, so we are sanctified through faith in Him. And just as Christ was raised bodily into glory, triumphing over death forever, so we will be raised up in the same way through faith in Him. And just as He is the Son of God by nature, so we become the adopted sons of God through faith in Him. What is His by nature becomes ours by grace. And this, this is what the word entitlement or right is meant to signify, beloved. All the saving benefits that we receive through our faith union with Jesus Christ are gifts of His grace We don't deserve them, but by virtue of their source in Him, they're also ours by right. In other words, He deserved them for us. Because Christ is not only our covenant mediator, that is our go-between, but He is our covenant surety, the one who secures the covenant blessing of life and salvation for us, we can be sure that our eternal destinies are secure in Him. He has secured, not just made possible salvation for those who believe in Him. He has secured that salvation for them. He has secured the covenant blessing of life for us such that that is now ours by right. No one, no one, this is why Paul can say, no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we teach our children from Shorter Catechism question 34, adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number. You know what comes next? And have a right, have a right to all the privileges of the sons 
of God. Why do some believe and others do not? John continues in verse 13 saying, Who were born, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There it is. There's the doctrine of the new birth, the doctrine of the effectual calling, the doctrine of regeneration. This is a teaching that Jesus will, di- will deliver to Nicodemus in chapter 3. Every human being experiences a natural birth, but not every human being experiences a supernatural birth. This supernatural birth is not of blood, John says, literally of bloods signifying familial relations by blood. It's not of the will of the flesh, signifying sexual desire. It's not of the will of man, signifying the way husbands and wives make plans to conceive children. This birth is different. This birth is supernatural. This birth is an act of God and God alone. The one who experiences this birth does not receive it by nature, but by grace. It is a gift of God's grace. It is God's own sovereign act in the hearts of His elect people. And so later in chapter 3 and verse 8, Jesus describes the work of the Holy Spirit in this birth, saying, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Are you able to control the wind? Some people actually think they can control the wind. But is that true? No one controls the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. Were you able to control whether you would be born naturally into this world or not? No one controls whether they will or will not be born in the world. And no one controls whether they would be born of God. God alone is in control of who receives this birth and when they receive it. And so we teach our children from Shorter Catechism Question 31, effectual calling is the work, the work of God's Spirit. God alone grants the effectual calling. God alone grants the new birth. God alone opens the heart, transforming it so that the sinner is enabled, not only enabled, but made willing to embrace Jesus Christ as He is freely offered to us in the gospel. This is what John is touching on at this stage in his prologue. He is is introducing for us his major themes. This idea of witness-bearing, the idea of the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The way that the Son of God coming into the world is like light shining into darkness so that there's a division between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And the line of demarcation in that division runs through every human heart. He is teaching us how it is that most of those who were His own rejected Him at His first coming. Most of the world rejected him. But, but, in God's grace, some did not. In God's grace and through the powerful working of God's Spirit to grant the new birth, some believed, some received him as their Messiah. Some entrusted themselves to him gave themselves to Him and knew that He was indeed the Son of God sent into the world for their salvation. I want to ask you this evening, do you know that? Do you know that? 
Have you been born of the Spirit? Have you been born from above? Have you taken hold of Christ by faith? Have you seen the true light, not just outwardly in the general call of the gospel, but inwardly? Has it changed you? Has it changed you? Has it made you like Jesus? I think those are questions we should oftentimes ask ourselves. And we should remember that ultimately it's God who does that work in our hearts to change us that we might take hold of Christ by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for a time to study the text together, to think about this true light which You sent into the world. We thank You, our Father, that though the light has shined in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it and cannot overcome it. But You will indeed have Your way. Father, we marvel that You and Your grace would grant to sinners like us the right to become children of God through the working of Your incarnate Son and Your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray in this hour that if there are any here who don't know the Lord Jesus in a saving way, who haven't yet received that spiritual enlightenment, who haven't yet been born again of the Spirit from above, that this might be the evening of their salvation. We lift up before You our covenant children. We pray that You might indeed bring them to the place of receiving by faith the promises that You've held out to them in their baptisms, that they would receive Christ and be cleansed spiritually, that they might receive that inner enlightenment and know Him in a saving way and follow after Him as their Lord and Savior, forsaking the world and resisting the devil and even putting to death their sinful deeds and desires, that they might live their lives for Him. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.